I have just come to love this section of scripture. There's a lot to wade through and it can be confusing because you're trying to keep up with two kingdoms at the same time and you're trying to keep up with kings who all have ridiculously similar sounding names all at the same time. But there is some stuff that's in there that God gave us in his word that is not only fun, that it, that is profound and insightful. And unlike so many situations in our lives where we wonder, what is God really saying? What is God really doing Who in this? Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, the Bible gives us the answer because we get the answer at the end. And it tells us exactly who was right and who was wrong and all of those things. But I think tonight, too, we all need a story with a happy ending. This is not one of those where they all lived happily ever after. But to me, this is a happy ending. This just reinforces the goodness and the faithfulness of God for me. And I hope that it will for you. If not, then I believe the Spirit will have something else to show you in this passage. Now, last time, as we started a study of the king's In the Old Testament, we we covered the Rehoboam and Jeroboam debacle and how the kingdom was split because Rehoboam wasn't very smart. Well, we're going to fast forward some time, several kings later, to set the background for King Jehoram. King Jehoram is one of Judah's kings, but he's not one of Judah's best kings. And tonight we're going to look at his pathetic reign and his pathetic life and see if we can maybe learn some things, draw some conclusions from that. And I think this is a lot of fun. Let me just say more of the background here. There was Rehoboam, then there was another guy in between, and then there was a king named Asa. And he was known as good King Asa. He reigned in Judah for 41 years. Which is good because that suggests that it was stable. Asa didn't do everything right, but he was a good king. And then followed by Asa, King Jehoshaphat. Now, maybe you don't want to name your kid or your dog or anything after King Jehoshaphat. But if you did, that's a good namesake. Because he's one of the best. With with just one little mess up, King Jehoshaphat, is is the kind of leader that we need today. And we don't have time to get into all of this tonight. But if you have a chance, maybe tomorrow or later on tonight, read Second Chronicles chapter 20, the chapter immediately preceding this, about Jehoshaphat, because that that is the kind of leadership, that is the kind of man of God that we would like to see in charge. And for the most part, he was amazing. But the, the point is, with all of that, for the past 66 years in Judah, they've had good kings. There's been good leadership. There, there's been the kind of thing that, that God had intended. And then there's Jehoram. Let's begin. Second Chronicles chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Jehoram his son reigned in his place. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariah, Michael, and Shephatiah. And there will be a quiz on those names when we're done tonight. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Verse 3, their father gave them great gifts of silver, gold, and valuable possessions together with fortified cities in Judah, But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. 
Nothing unusual. That's the way it was supposed to work. That was the way that it was supposed to be. So far, so good. The, the succession of kings, the firstborn son, takes over for his father. But it didn't stop there. Let's look at verse 4. When Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. So now that I'm king, I'll just kill all my brothers. We're going to get a hint as to why that would be later on. But in Jehoram's mind, in order to establish his reign, he had to eliminate any possible threat, even even if that included his brothers. Now, there's no reason to believe, there's no reason to even suspect that his brothers even created a threat. They understood. They were raised by a godly king. They were raised by a godly father. They would have understood that the kingship is going to go to the firstborn. They weren't a threat. They weren't a problem. But just in case, one of the first things Jehoram does is he eliminates them. He has them killed. A couple of observations about that just very quickly. There's some, some things that we might co- just conclude from that. Because again, Jehoshaphat's a great king, godly man. And his offspring, his eldest son, is Jehoram. First thing is this. Godly parents don't always produce godly offspring. They don't. Well, what about that verse that says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's older he will not depart from it. Well, that's a proverb which means that generally that's going to be the case. And generally, uh, parents should raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And generally, when they do that, those children will, will grow up to walk with God also. But that doesn't always happen. And sometimes godly parents raise some pretty bad kids. And sometimes that's for a season, And their leash runs out and God brings them home and sometimes he doesn't. I've seen the flip side of that too. I've seen some amazingly ungodly parents raise godly children. And it's amazing. And it it shows the goodness and faithfulness of God that that stuff that happened in one generation does not have to be carried over into the next generation. And, And the things that the enemy intended for evil, God can turn into good. So if you didn't have godly parents, that doesn't mean that you can't be a godly person or that you can't raise godly kids. But we do see in Scripture, even even in the case of the prophet Samuel, who was another just hero of the Scripture, godly parents don't always produce godly offspring. Second one is this, and this specifically about Jehoram. When you take power and you combine with it insecurity... That's a deadly combination. That's bad. And the reason why Jehoram would feel the pressure that I've got to kill all my brothers so they don't maybe overthrow me, he must have been incredibly insecure. And when you mix power and insecurity, oh, look out. Look out because that that is a terrible combination. And when you've got a leader that's always looking over his shoulder, when you've got a leader that everybody is a threat to them, When you have a leader that demands unconditional loyalty, look out. Because this is the kind of thing that will happen. So let's let's continue. Second Chronicles twenty one, chapter five. I meant to warn you at the beginning, I feel like in covering this that we're going in all kinds of different directions. 
Well, that's because the text is going in all kinds of different directions to tell this one story. So if it's there, we'll chase that jackrabbit for just a minute, and then we'll come back to it. Verse 5. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. That, that's not a compliment. That, that's, that's a bad thing. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel the, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. A few minutes ago, I referred to there there was one mistake that Jehoshaphat made. Great king, godly king, but he made one mistake. Towards the end, he allied himself with the king of Israel. Now, you would think that, well, Judah and Israel, they're supposed to be close. There used to be one nation. Well, not at that point. All All of the kings of Israel were wicked and evil with one kind of marginal exception of a decent king. But all of these kings, particularly Ahab, were wicked and evil. Ahab, remember, was the one that was married to Jezebel. Ahab was the one that the Bible says that he did more evil than all of the kings that went before him. That's not somebody that you want to align yourself with. But Jehoshaphat, for some reason, toward the end of his reign, towards the end of his life, he does that. Well, Jehoram walks in that way too. Jehoram marries the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Now, that was before Paul said anything about being unequally yoked. But I mean, that was unequally yoked. You've got the the godly king, his son, marrying the daughter of the wicked king and the wicked queen. That's a bad combination. Her name's going to be Athaliah. Athaliah later on is going to be the only queen that Judah would ever have. Now, if you're a lady and you're really excited about, you know, women and leadership and all that kind of thing, don't get real excited about Athaliah being a a great queen or something like that. She's not going to be that. Uh, Very wicked, almost destroys the whole house of David. But God intervened and one survivor remained. Little boy named Joash who would eventually become the queen. Athaliah would be overthrown, but she, she usurped that, stepped into a place where she shouldn't have, and that's the only reason why that ever happened. Well, this, this is what's taking place here, is this is who Jehoram has chosen for his wife, Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab. It says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. A couple of things. The, the next slide there, that Jehoram married Athaliah, who would later be, become the only queen that Judah would ever have. And then again, the Second Chronicles 22 is where you can read about this. She tried to eliminate the house of David. But I want to go back to this, to, to go on to verse 7. Because here's the thing, all of this evil is taking place. Where's God in the story? What, what is God doing? Doesn't look like he's doing much of anything. But all God is doing is continuing to protect and uphold a promise that he had made a long time before. Look at 21 verse 7. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David. Understand, when we're talking about the kings of Judah, this this line of kings, that's the house of David. God's not willing to destroy that. This is an evil king. Why doesn't God destroy him? Why, why doesn't God destroy that line of the kings of David, the kings of Judah? Because he said he wasn't going to. 
a long time before God had made a promise to David. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Let's, if, if you don't want to turn there, that's fine. But let's look back on the screen on the, this verse right here. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. It says this. God made a promise to David a long time before. He said, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There was a point in time in King David's life where he realized, I'm living in a palace. And the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, is still in a tent. So here's what I'd like to do. I want to build a house. I want to build a temple for God's presence and the Ark of the Covenant to come and dwell. Nathan the prophet came to David and said, what's in your heart to do is good. But Nathan went back and prayed and the Lord revealed something to him. He said, David's not the one to do that. David had said to the Lord, God, I want to build you a house. I want to build a house for your presence. And God said, no, 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 you're not the one to do that, David. That's going to be your son Solomon. And that's exactly what's going to take place. But part of that promise, part of what God's response was that I never had picked up quite as much before is this. David said, God, I want to build you a house. And God said, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to establish you. And I'm going to establish your descendants. I'm going to establish the line of the kings through you. And even though there would reach a point where the kingdom of Judah was wiped out, it seemed like that had been maybe interrupted, maybe canceled out. A long time after that, God raised up another son of David, born in Bethlehem. He didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law. And he came to do what the law couldn't do. He came to do what all of those other kings and all of those other prophets weren't able to do. And that got passed on to us as children of God we, we carry on that line and it all began because God made that promise to David and it carried on through his descendants and it carried on through Jesus and it carried on through us as his joint heirs. God said it at, this, at that point and he didn't forget about it. When evil kings would rise and then evil kings would fall God wasn't willing to destroy the king in the line of David because he said he wasn't going to. Oh, but don't worry. There's still a happy ending to the story, and we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Jehoram's wickedness, as bad as he was, it did not change God's promise. God's promise still stood. Second Chronicles 21, let's look down at verse 11 the, the part that we're going to skip there, nothing good happens to Jehoram. The kingdom basically becomes, begins to unravel. The kingdom starts to fall apart. But let's look at what else Jehoram does starting in verse 11. It says this, Moreover, he made high places in the hill country of Judah and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom and made Judah go astray. It wasn't bad enough that Israel had already gone astray. Now Jehoram comes on the scene and he's helping the people of Judah go, to, go astray as well. Verse 12. And a letter 
came to him from Elijah, the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the ways of the king of Israel and have enticed Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom, as the house of Ahab led Israel into whoredom. And also you have killed your brothers of your father's house who were better than yourself. What was the reason why Jehoram felt like he had such a threat from his brothers? Because they were better than he was. And he knew it. And he had to eliminate the threat before the people found out, before the people realized, I think we have the wrong king. So I'll just kill all my brothers because they're better than I am. Verse 14, consequences. Elijah, the one who normally was pronouncing the curse on Ahab in the land of Israel, Elijah does the same thing by letter to the kingdom of Judah. I like consequences and they're about to start happening. Verse 14, Behold, the Lord will bring a great plague on your people, your children, your wives, and all your possessions. That doesn't sound good, but verse 15, this really starts to get ugly. And you yourself will have a severe sickness with a disease. It's one thing to have a disease. It's another thing to have a severe sickness. But when you have a severe sickness with a disease, that's that's not good. But it only gets worse because it gets specific. It's not just a disease. It's not just a severe sickness. It's a severe sickness with the disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the disease. Not all at one time, day by day. I don't want to get really graphic about this. I don't want to get really specific about this, but that's bad. If, if nothing else, this experience is going to be a gut-wrenching one for Jehoram. It could get worse before it gets better. So it begins. Verse 16, the consequences start. It says, And the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the anger of the Philistines and of the Arabians who were near the Ethiopians. Notice that phrase right there. It doesn't say anything about... The Philistines and the Arabians decided to get mad at Jehoram. God stirred him up. That's, that's not a good place when God starts stirring up your enemies against you. Now, that could be corrective. That could be disciplinary. In this case, I think it's pure punitive. Here it comes, Jehoram. You wanted to follow in the ways of evil. You wanted to follow in the ways of wickedness. Well, let's see where that road goes. The Lord stirred up the anger of his enemies. Verse 17. And they came up against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions they found that belonged to the king's house and also his sons and his wives so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. It's all carried away. And Jehoram is left alone. But it's only going to get worse from there. That's the fallout phase one. The fallout phase two, we start in verse 18. And after all this, the Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out. 
I told you there was going to be some fallout. Well, it's his bowels that are falling out. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease. And he died in great agony. And, I, and to that I say, praise God. And I mean that. That's good. This guy got what he had coming to him. And God was very specific. This may not be God's judgment. This may not be God's wrath on everybody. But it was on this guy. He died in great agony. The fallout part three, the second part of verse 19. This is where it almost starts to sound sad. His people made no fire in his honor like the fires made for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. Great, great phrase right here. And he departed with no one's regret. Jehoram died, and nobody cared. Jehoram died, and it wasn't a big deal to anybody. Nobody was sad, nobody mourned, nobody had that sense of loss. There was fallout. There were consequences. It says they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. It's almost as if the people are saying, we're sorry this whole thing ever happened. Okay, we're going to bury you in the city of David, but you don't even get to be buried with the rest of the kings because you're not worthy of that. You might be a, a, a descendant of Asa and Jehoshaphat and David and Solomon, but you're not worthy to be buried where they are. You didn't deserve that. And look at where your life led to. Now, we don't get all of the details. We, we don't get exactly what happened. But I don't think the text and the scripture really is, is trying to get us to feel sorry for Jehoram. He made his choices early on. He had every opportunity to walk with the Lord and serve the Lord. Really, he didn't even have to do much. The, the pathway had been laid before him by Asa and Jehoshaphat. All he has to do is walk in their ways, and he immediately steps in and destroys it. Now, I don't know about you, but I just don't find a whole lot of sympathy in my own heart for this guy. But what I love about the scripture is, it's, it, 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 see, think about this. If, if this happened in our day, there'd be a whole lot of questions. There'd be a whole lot of people saying, well, you know, I, I just wonder, was, was Elijah, was, was he being judgmental? Was it really his place to send this king the letter that he did? Was that really his place? But the scripture answers that question. Sure it was. Now, now maybe, maybe Jehoram was just the, the product of, of a bad upbringing and, and maybe he was disadvantaged and didn't have the, the same opportunities as all the other kids, all the other kings. Nope, that's not going to fly either. And the scripture answers the question, this was a wicked king and God meted out the consequences and they're graphic, and they're gross, and they're horrible sounding. I don't know about the last time maybe you had a stomach flu, the kind where you feel like you're going to die, and maybe wish that you would. And what do those last, about 24 hours? Because you probably wouldn't survive if it lasted much longer than that. 
Jehoram, he's losing his bowels for two years. Day by day. God took notice. God didn't let this go. Yet in the middle of all of this, God had made that promise to King David, who's been dead for a long time now. And God was not willing to destroy the house of David because he had made the promise that he was going to do that. Jehoram is going to die. Jehoram dies. His son takes over as king. Nothing improves. He dies. And then the wife, the mother, Jehoram's wife, Athaliah, the mother of the next king, when the next king dies, she just decides, well, I think I'll be king. That didn't work out so well for her either. I just want us to understand something, and this is what brings me such encouragement in the Scripture, because this this isn't about, this is going to come later. There's going to be mercy. There's going to be opportunity to repent later. But there are times that I think we get to rejoice that it doesn't seem like God's doing much and it doesn't seem like God's active in the story. And God, why are you allowing this kind of evil to take place? And God just reminds us through a king who lost his bowels, I got this. You can't even make a phone call on your cell phone without your cell phone company knowing who you called, when you called them, how long you talked. If they know all that, there's not a conversation we have. There, there, there's not a thought that we have. There's not a deed that we do that God doesn't notice, that God's not well aware of what's taking place. But at the end of the day, there's a flip side to this. It's not just about God's looking to give somebody an incurable disease of the bowels because they did evil. Turn over with me in your Bibles. One more verse tonight. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. We're going to go way back, just real briefly, to the days of Samuel and Eli. God said this long before, and it continues to prove true in Scripture. And it continues to prove true in our lives, too. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares... I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God says, those who honor me, I will honor. It may not be in a big public way. It may not be up in front of a group of people. It may not be out loud. But God says, those who honor me, I will honor. Even if it's in the secret place, even if it's things that nobody else knows about, is the condition of our heart. God, I just want to honor you. I've got this decision to make tomorrow, and I'm not sure what I need to do. I don't really have any idea. But God, my prayer is whatever I do, I pray that that I would just honor you in that. God, I'm really not sure what I should say. I'm really not sure how to handle this situation. But let me honor you however I do that. We'll be amazed how much more wisdom we have and how much differently things might go when the desire of our heart and the motivation of our heart 
It's just to say, God, I want to honor you. And I just think of that part at the end, that those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Jehoram died with no one's regret. Jehoram died not having made a bit of difference, just wasted his life, just was a big zero. And you might as well have written on his tombstone, whoever this was died and nobody really cares. God says those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Let that encourage your heart tonight. That God sees. Oh, and the evil that you see all around you, God's got it. God knows. God sees it. God's going to deal with that. But more importantly than all of that stuff that we see around us, God says those who honor me, I will honor.